This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, the Cardassian spy. Wait, nope, sorry. Nope, I'm not a Cardassian spy. I'm a tailor, a tailor, yes. That's the ticket. Uh, Dan Gunther. And joining me as he does always is the... Paragon of Virtue Starfleet Captain Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? I'm doing fine, number one. How are you? <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, excited to talk about a Deep Space Nine book. It feels like it's been a little while since we've talked DS9. It has been a while. We've done so many books in the post-Nemesis era that were primarily TNG and Titan or a combination of different series into one big epic novel or series of novels or whatever, but not anything specific to DS9 in quite a while. So we threw this one on the list. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've been teasing it. We should tell you that our feature today is the Deep Space Nine novel Hollow Men by Una McCormick. So uh, we look forward to that in the feature. But before we get there, we do have a little bit of exciting book news that kind of came across the desk shortly before we started recording this episode. And this is a cover reveal for a new Star Trek novel coming later this year. This is really exciting because this is the first of the Kelvin timeline novels. You may remember those four novels that were not canceled, but shelved a few years ago by pocketbooks. Well, we are getting one of them now, and this one is The Unsettling Stars by Alan Dean Foster. It had a different name when it was announced back in 2009, 2010, whenever that was, but uh, the new title is The Unsettling Stars, and we've got a cover reveal for it. So, uh, Bruce, why don't you kind of describe this cover to us and, and give us your thoughts on it? So it says Star Trek going up the side. It's the... TOS Star Trek font in red going up the uh, side of the cover. And then uh, there in the middle, it looks like a, almost like a pencil sketch of Kirk in the uniform uh, that he's wearing with the bars in the sleeve from uh, beyond. Uh, mm-hmm. And then yeah. we have Spock, of course, Zachary Quinta Spock. And then we have uh, Uhura 
So we have those three characters sketched on there, and at the bottom it says, The Unsettling Stars. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say, oh, this is like the best cover I've ever seen. I'm, it's, it's just more like I'm just thrilled that I'm seeing a Kelvin Timeline cover for once, you know? Yeah, I'm really excited for this. Uh, first of all, it's Alan Dean Foster. I mean, one of the big names of science fiction writing. I, I love that he's writing an original Star Trek novel that we're going to get a look at here. And the fact that it's the Kelvin timeline and we're finally going to get a peek into these books or at least a couple of these books that were announced way back when. Uh, we've also got David Max coming later in the year. We don't have cover for that one yet, but we'll, of course, talk about that one when we do. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited for this. I think, you know, it's about time, I guess, is what it comes down to. It's long overdue. It's been 10 years. No, over 10 mm-hmm. years now. Uh, oh, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. I, I've been really <laughs> wanting these books. I, I just want books in the Kelvin timeline. And we've had comics, which has been great, but I've really been wanting some novels. And I don't think this novel is going to do exactly what I want to do, but I would like some novels that really go deep into like the history or things that we didn't see on screen that explain certain things that are going in the Kelvin timeline that's different from the prime timeline. I, I'm not expecting that from this book. I'm just expecting it to be just a story in the Kelvin timeline, but I'm really excited just to dive into something that's a little different from the typical TOS that we usually get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I'm most excited for is probably, you know, the telling of stories that are different from the original series ones. You know, like I don't want a story that I could just paste over the the TOS characters with. I want one that will be unique to that particular universe and really use that universe to its full potential. And I, I, you know, I hope that's what we're getting here. It kind of sounds like it. So, yep, I think so. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. April 14th, put on your calendars. Mm -hmm. I'll definitely be getting that for sure. Well, before we get into the feature, we do also want to respond to feedback from our last episode, and that's from Literary Treks 293, and then what happened. This is all about a singular destiny. We had Keith R.A. DeCandido on that show. Uh, So let's pop over to the Babel Conference and see what you guys had to say about that episode. So Justin Ozer says, loved the interview. Keith DeCandido has written some of my favorite Trek novels, novellas, and short stories, and A Singular Destiny was no exception. I loved seeing a new character, Sonak Pran, who just leapt off the page and quickly became a favorite novel-verse character. It's always amazing to see Captain Ezri Dax in the Aventine, President Nan Bako, IKS Gorkon, and SCE characters, and so many more. The entire novel was just a great cross-section of what's happening after the devastating events of Destiny, and I also loved the documents, logs, interviews, transcripts, casualty lists, etc. between the chapters. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Justin. I love a good casualty list. <laughs> Anyway, he goes on to say, I've read the Typhon Pact before, but I had no idea this novel led up to that, and the mystery that unfolds was perfect. It was interesting that Keith said he's more interested in writing about the aftermath of big events instead of the big events themselves. I love that approach, and he's written some amazing novels and stories about that kind of topic. In particular, I recently read the SCE novella Breakdowns, which was profoundly moving and one of the best things I've ever read. By the way, I hope you can cover the SCE sometime in the future on Literary Treks, as I've been really loving those novellas. I would give a singular destiny 10 out of 10 fantastic jam sessions on the Aventine. Wow. Yeah. That's high praise right there. Definitely. <laughs> Oz Trekkie says, I love this novel. I do enjoy reading the aftermath stories, and Keith did a great job of setting up the Typhon Pack 
while not glossing over the horror about the scale, the effect the Borg invasion had. The chapters with the personal stories really brought home the loss on an individual level. I was hoping the bit at the end was Keith saying he is contracted for a Star Trek novel. Nope, sorry. I give this five out of five deep and meaningful conversations with Sonic Pran. P.S. Waiting for the Star Trek Stargate comic crossover series. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. I think that's a really good. I didn't follow all of Stargate. I've watched bits and pieces of it. And of course, I'm familiar with the movie, but I would love to see a Star Trek Stargate. That would work really well. But also high praise there. Five out of five for this novel. So, yeah. Keith is knocking it out of the park. (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Well, Kimberly Lawler says, great interview. I also often like the story after the story more than the main event sometimes, although Destiny was so amazing, it might be the exception to this. So it was really interesting to have this book as the aftermath of the Borg invasion before kicking off the Typhon Pact series. I like how Keith and other authors really made the Federation civilian government so much a part of this world to go along with Starfleet, with great characters like Nan Bako. I also think it's cool that so many of the authors are good friends with each other so they can collaborate on storylines. Really happy to hear again that there is a plan with respect to somehow tying in these books with the new Picard show going forward. I could not agree with you more more on that. Uh, The fact that we keep hearing that really makes me happy and I can't wait till we find out what that is. I was just thinking about the comments about aftermath stories that keith really likes them and kimberly likes aftermath stories too that's what the feature is today this is an aftermath story that's true yeah that's a good thought i hadn't thought of that yeah and then we have brandon harbeck says i love a singular destiny a lot and this was an interesting interview something from the book that i enjoyed that was not mentioned in the episode was the introduction of the typhon pack currency The economics of the 24th century may be different, sure, but just having a physical artifact that represents all six powers of the pact is a neat idea. Yeah, I agree. I love that scene where they find that. And uh, I I hadn't remembered that from reading it the first time. And I thought that was a really cool touch as well. Yeah, that was like the that was one of the clues leading up to the mention of Typhon Pack, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was kind of right at the very end. They found the. And they had the different languages of all the species and stuff. And yeah. that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was cool. I like that. Well, Jeff Lubin says, great interview and thankful Keith DeCandido is willing to do these interviews. Makes the books that much more enjoyable when you get to hear the behind the scenes tidbits. Thanks. Well, you're welcome, Jeff. And thank you, Keith DeCandido, for coming on the show. We love it when the authors join us. And thank you, Jeff, for listening. Well, Bruce, what do you say we jump into the feature and talk about a Deep Space Nine novel, Hollow Men by Una McCormick? It's an aftermath novel. I like that. So, Bruce, like you said uh, in the first part, this is an aftermath novel. And what it is the aftermath of is the fan favorite episode and one of the truly great hours, I think, of Deep Space Nine, and that is In the Pale Moonlight. So this novel kind of explores the fallout from the events of that episode. And for those listening who may not remember, In the Pale Moonlight is the episode where Sisko decides he's going to bring the Romulans into the Dominion War by having Garrick create false evidence to convince them that the Dominion has plans of invading Romulus. Unfortunately, this plan goes south. You may remember the famous, it's a fake scene from Vreenak and, uh, 
you know, Vrenak heads back to Romulan space furious because the Federation has tried to put one over on him. But before he can make it back home, his ship explodes. And of course, Garrick is the one to have perpetrated this crime. And the evidence of the this data rod showing the meeting that the Dominion is going to invade Romulus uh, is discovered and the Romulans come into the war on the side of the Federation. And it's all based on this lie and the death of this Romulan senator. And this, of course, weighs heavily on Cisco because of the role he played in all of this. Uh, not intending, of course, to have Renat killed, but for starting things in motion and his kind of complicity in this event. So um, I want to ask you, Bruce, how did it feel to revisit the station in these characters in season six of DS9 during this particular time? Because this is a really unique novel. You know, all of the novels being published at this time were kind of the, uh, outside of the original series anyway, were the... Uh, you know, shared continuity post Deep Space Nine finale, post Nemesis stuff. So this was a really different novel to come out at the time. So it was really nice to read this novel now because, as we mentioned earlier in the show, we haven't read a Deep Space Nine novel in a while. And that so many novels we have been reading are usually, you know, post DS9, post Nemesis, post whatever. So it was great to come back into the time period that the TV show was taking place. This really does take off immediately after In the Pale Moonlight. It really does play off the events of that episode. Even to the fact that this book, if you're watching season six, you would want to read this book as soon as you finish watching In the Pale Moonlight and then go on to the next episode his way because this book leads into that episode. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a nice bridge between the episodes, but it fills in so much about what these characters are dealing with. And what's going on during the Dominion War, what's going on with the Romulans, the Cardassians, Starfleet and the Federation for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just a lot there. Do I feel that In the Pale Moonlight deserves and needs a sequel? Not necessarily. I like the episode as its own. I don't feel like it should have a sequel because it's such a good, strong episode. But this novel is a good companion to it. It is mm-hmm. a good aftermath follow-up to what happens in that episode. So it's good to get that kind of perspective of what Cisco has to deal with after those events. Yeah. And even some of the stuff that like I I didn't really understand when I was reading the novel until I looked at like the episode listing and where this all falls in. So one of the things we're dealing with is Bashir seems really down and, and kind of angsty about something. And I was like, what's that about? Like, what's going on? And then I looked at the episode order and of course... Uh, the episode Inquisition is right before In the Pale Moonlight, and that's when he learns all about Section 31 and they try and recruit him. So, you know, it, even all these little things like, oh, that's why Bashir's so upset. Like, that's what's going on there. And mm-hmm. like, I, I love how it really does feel like a really strong part of that whole tableau, that whole season six of Deep Space Nine, like it slots in there so nicely. So many books that take place during the series run, they're kind of, you know, not necessarily connected to exactly what's happening in the story uh, on the television show. But Deep Space Nine is such an interconnected series with things that change the status quo going forward that you can't really have a standalone story at this time in Deep Space Nine's run. It does have to connect to all these things. And I think Una McCormick does a really good job of doing that. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, she plays off those different episodes. I had to go back and look, too. 
And because I knew what it was referring to, but I didn't remember when these episodes took place in relation to the novel. They're all leading right into In the Pale Moonlight. And then, like I said, then after this novel ends, it leads right into His Way. So it really does play off of the season. So I think the novel works stronger if you either A, just watch the season or be are very, very familiar with the season. It's so ingrained in your, your head. But mm. I think it really works well, maybe even to watch Inquisition and In the Pale Moonlight, then go to this novel, and then, if you want, go on to his way and just end it there. You know, it's kind of like, watch these episodes with the novel. Yeah. Um, and even just the fact that we're revisiting these characters and stuff too in in what I think is of as their prime, you know, we get to see Major Kira on the station. We get to see Chief O'Brien doing his thing. We get to see Quark doing his thing in in his bar, and like I just I love that series so much. So to be able to get back in there again, I think it was just such a nice, even, even though they're at war and it's, you know, kind of a dark time of the series, it's still so nice to revisit that station as it was before the end of DS9. I love the post DS9 books. I love the relaunch and all of that, but it's just so good to get back into the heyday with these guys. Yeah. And it's not just on the station and there's like two storylines in this and one is on the station and one is on earth. So, but we do get a lot of the station uh, because of that other storyline. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, uh, let's kind of jump to the earth story then for now, because uh, Cisco and Garrick are traveling to earth uh, for a Starfleet conference. It's kind of a wartime conference between uh, the Federation, the Klingons, and their new allies, the Romulans. And interestingly enough, a so-called Cardassian government in exile that Garrick kind of dismisses as... Oh, they're not unimportant. my government. Oh, they're not my government. Every time yeah, somebody says, oh, your government, they're not my government. <laughs> yeah, he says that quite frequently. Um, yeah, and, and Garrick really seems to kind of disdain these two Cardassians that, you know, aren't maybe they're opportunists or that kind of thing, but they're definitely not any kind of viable uh, force that's going to stand up to the dominion occupied government on Cardassia. And all through this story, Cisco is of course, wrestling with this guilt of what he feels is his complicity in the death of Senator Vrenak and the other people that died, the forager and the security guards of Vrenak and all of that stuff. So I, I kind of wanted to ask, do you think that uh, Cisco's guilt is justified here? Do you think like he's kind of got this dark cloud hanging over him? What he did is definitely not what we've come to expect of, you know, a paragon of virtue Starfleet officer kind of thing. I don't know. What do you think of, of how Cisco's dealing with this? I think this is perfect for Cisco. I think this really works. When we end the episode in the pale moonlight, he ends it with saying, I'm okay with it, but he's really like, he's justifying it, but you know that deep down inside, you know, even in the episode, we know that it still bothers him. You know, it, it may feel like it's the right decision overall for the war, but what about your own ethics? You know, mm -hmm. that you contribute to the death of someone and you're cheating and kind of lying to make things happen and you're playing that corrupt game and 
this novel really works because that's really the theme of the whole novel for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm just going to say we're going into spoilers pretty early because I don't feel like we can talk about the subject without going into spoilers. Yeah, I was kind of dancing around it, but I, there's there's really no way I don't think. There's the moment that, and maybe I'll save it for a little later, but there's a moment towards the end of the book where I think he starts to realize that everybody is making the excuse that it's okay to break the rules, that in wartime, rules can be overlooked. And it just bothers him to the point that he keeps saying to people, but I did something that is wrong. And everyone he talks to, even his own father, says, well, if no one has a problem with it, I wouldn't worry about it. And he keeps insisting there's nothing, but, but it's still wrong. There should be some punishment. There should be something. And just to let it go, just because it's war, doesn't make it right. Mm-hmm. And people are like, essentially the message to him is like, yes, but the thing is you can live with this because you didn't do it. You might contribute to these things. You might had some play in it, but you're not the one that killed people. So you should be okay with it. I mean, it's just kind of a weird, he even goes to um, Leighton, his former captain, you know, who was doing the same type of things just like a season or two earlier. And you know, Cisco accused him of doing, you know, the wrong things. And now Cisco's like, but now I'm just doing the same thing. And when he goes to see Leighton, Leighton's like, well, if you're at, at coming to see me to ask for forgiveness, you're not going to get it or a reprimand. You're not going to get from me. I think you did do the right thing. He goes, as a matter of fact, you're making it more valid that I was doing the right thing. It's just, maybe I was doing it at the wrong time. You did it at the right time. I, I, Yeah. That whole thing, I thought that was brilliant that he goes to see Leighton and that the author makes those connections between what Cisco did and what Leighton did. The difference, I think, and I really love that Cisco's dad is the one to point this out, is he says, Leighton still doesn't think what he did is wrong. Like, don't compare yourself to him. He still thinks he's completely justified. You're racking yourself up and down about this guilt and you're feeling guilty and you didn't even pull the trigger. You didn't intend for him to die or anything like that, but you're questioning yourself. You're doing this. That's the difference. And I thought that's interesting. I I love that because I was kind of there too. I was thinking like, is there a real difference? Like, between what they did. And I, I think there is, it's, it's a bit of a distinction, but I think there is a difference there. And we know that Cisco is a good person because he is questioning himself and, um, believing that he's not innocent in all of this. Whereas I think Leighton does totally still think that he was absolutely justified in what he did. Yeah. It's like when Cisco originally went to Garrick in the pale moonlight, he didn't know Garrick was going to do what he ultimately did. Mm. But I think Garrick has even pointed out to him like, oh, but you know me. You know who I am. This is what you wanted. And I think it's Cisco grasping with, it is and it isn't. And I didn't come out and directly ask you to do it. So I'm really not that guilty. But I do know in the back of my head, I knew that was a possibility. So I feel I'm just as guilty because I approached Garrick about it, you know, and now he's still trying to come to grips with those decisions as opposed to Leighton and others 
who are purposely doing this. They're purposely, we're out to do this, we're out to do wrong, but it's for the overall protection of everyone. And in a lot of ways, this connects even to that previous episode where uh, Section 31 is introduced to Bashir. Bashir is questioning Section 31, and Sloan says, you know, well, you know, you lied about your background to get into medical school and you saved lives. Do you think all those people whose lives you saved would complain that you lied? And it's Mm -hmm. like the same thing, you know, it's like the same guilt. It's like you lied, you broke the rules or whatever, but where are the end results? It's a scary thing to discuss because it's not suggesting that we should break rules, you know, but it's just kind of saying maybe rules are meant to be broken in severe situations, you know? The other aspect of this that I found really fascinating, of course, is that Cisco uh, comes clean to his superiors. He tells Admiral Ross and Admiral Botanides exactly what happened. And, and you know, that the fact that part of me in the back of my mind is like, I think Starfleet could have pieced this together already and just kept it hush-hush. But... You know, Cisco does come clean and say, you know, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a Dominion attack. Garrick blew up the ship and killed the senator and all this stuff. And they don't see fit to punish Cisco for any of this. Now, there's a couple things going on because we know at this time that Section 31 is a thing. And we know later on that Admiral Ross has dealings with Section 31. So, you know... The one aspect of this that's coming into play is Starfleet gets what it wants. It gets the Romulans in the war and doing anything to publish Cisco right now would just shine a light on how that happened and possibly destroy that alliance. So they don't want to do anything that's going to screw that up. Right. They're in a good place right now. Exactly. You know, the, the ends have justified the means in their minds here. On the other side of it as well, though, I'm wondering if Ross already has dealings with section 31 and he's like, Oh, pfft, that's nothing. Like you have, you have no idea what these guys in the leather suits over here are doing. Like, Oh, Cisco, you're fine. Like, nah, don't worry about it. Like, I, I seriously wonder after having finished the book, gotten to the end, like, Oh, is that kind of in here as well? Cause they're not shocked by this. It's like, okay, close the door. What's going on. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, well, Cool. Thanks for letting us know. We'll proceed from here. Um, You know, so part of me is wondering, like, what kind of fingers, what pies does Ross have his fingers in already at this point? I didn't even think about that aspect of it, Uh, but that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. He may already know some things through Section 31 and be involved in Section 31. Even though I wasn't thinking that, my thought was in that scene that either A, they are starting to piece some things together and maybe suspect that there may have been some foul play because there was a conversation with uh, between Garrick and Cisco on their way to earth that they had met and did a debriefing with Starfleet intelligence at like Starbase three ninety five or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, Garrick's been invited back to earth. It's like, you know, there's going to be further conversations from Starfleet intelligence. And I kept thinking, well, what was it that they told Starfleet intelligence are they putting the pieces together and maybe Ross is even part of that in a sense Mm -hmm. uh but at the same time thinking well you know as we said earlier they're in a good place this conference is going on right now the Romulans are involved 
what more can we ask for outside of having the war ended than to have this strength to maybe bring peace? And then Cisco comes and says, well, you know what got us here? Garrett killed two people to make it happen. And I just think that they're just going to be like, oh, well, then forget it. You know, we're going to call him out because <laughs> Garrick did this and everything's ruined now. I feel like they just feel like, you know, we're already too far down this railroad train. You know, we're already down the tracks too far that we can't. It's not a time to change anything. We just got to roll with what we got because what we got is a pretty good thing. And we can just overlook that. And that's a scary thing, too, because that's the whole thing about this novel is just overlooking things that are wrong as long as you're getting a good result out of it. Yeah, which is definitely scary and something that's it's a really easy path to go down very quickly, I think. I think the real danger when Cisco goes to his superiors is, you know, I, I don't think they would ever punish him or, or bring it to light or anything like that. I worry that worry, I guess, in quote marks, that Garrick would find himself in kind of a deep, dark hole until the end of the war because of you know, the danger that he might pose and what Starfleet might, you know, think of, of his involvement. But instead what happens is we get, you know, he's been being debriefed by these Starfleet intelligence officers who are certainly competent and good at their jobs, but he then gets a visit from a couple of other Starfleet officers that seem to have a bit of a different edge to them. And, you know, it's confirmed at the end of the novel but I think early on we kind of can suspect that these guys aren't, you know, playing by the rules type Starfleet officers. And I think we can make the quick leap that they're Section 31 approaching Garrick about this Thomas or Tomas Roder problem, uh, which is interesting. So what do you I don't know. What do you think about Section 31 approaching Garrick? That was kind of a chilling scene. Well, as you mentioned, it wasn't called out that they were Section 31 in that no, scene. Not, not until, until later. We, yeah, see the guy at the end. Yeah, when we see um, Enderby. Enderby. En- Enderby, yeah. Uh, but yes, there was part of me that suspected, are they Section 31? But, you know, in a lot of ways, it didn't really matter to me at that moment. I just knew that Starfleet Intelligence was bringing out the big guns and they were doing something shady, which made me think, well, it sounds like a Section 31 thing, but we've seen shady Starfleet intelligent officers are not Section 31. So I wasn't really that sure at that moment. But they're asking Garrick, in so many words, to uh, assassinate Tomas Roeder. And I, I thought the same thing Garrick thought after they left. Why him? They could do this themselves. Why do they need to use Garrick? But... You know, I feel like the thought was, well, if they were to get caught, then it's Starfleet or Section 31 or whoever is getting caught. But if it's if it's Garrick that gets caught, it's a Cardassian that gets caught. And that's the one frenemy in this situation that we can afford to lose is the Cardassians if we had to lose someone. Yeah. <laughs> so it was the weakest link to do this job on. And so hmm. I think that made sense. And Garrick, you know, they they put to Garrick as if, you know, we know what you did and you could go to prison for it. So you can either do this job or you can spend some time in prison. And Garrick now has to weigh that and decide what he wants to do. Yeah, which is, you know, definitely interesting. And I and I do love the perspective that we get from Garrick. I, I love that the novel allow us, allows us to get inside Garrick's head 
And this is something that Una McCormick will become very good at over the years is playing inside the mind of this Cardassian Taylor as scary a thought as that is. Um, but you know, he's never not in control of the situation. Like he doesn't feel pressured by these guys. He just like, Oh, I'm going to check things out and I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. And, you know, I'm not going to kill this guy because these guys say so, you know, if I kill this guy, it's going to be for my reasons and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I love, you know, that, that perspective, that outlook that we get of Garrick's that's just so, I, not psychopathic, but like just, you know, he's very good at what he does and he's very good at kind of compartmentalizing um, other people's lives and the total ends justify the means mindset, which is yeah. kind of scary to read the yeah, perspective. I was going to say very from. calculating. Yes, exactly. And, and just, yeah. Viewing everything as just like, what is, what is the end result? What does this get for me? And, um, you know, the, the ethics or the morality, there is, a morality there, but it's his own and it's very different from what we would consider uh, good morals or good ethics. I think there was a scene where Cisco said something about this isn't a game and Garrick says something to the fact of, oh my, what? yes, it is. It is a game. And to him, I really think it is a game. And, you know, when he's asked to do this assassination job prior to that meeting, he was disappointed that he wasn't being drilled as much as he should. Like he's looking for a challenge. It's like when these guys finally show up and they take him out to a park or whatever, and they're sitting on a bench and we're doing this outside and we're having this discussion. We're hearing Garrick's mind going, okay, this is what I was waiting for. Now bring on the challenge. Ooh, I got you. Ooh, I'm getting you now. Ooh, now I got you in my place. Like he's, he's always catching that. And even when he finally meets Tomas Roeder, it's the same thing. It's like, ooh, this is where I wanted to be. This is, you know, give me the challenge. What is he going to do next? He loves that whole game of calculation of what somebody's going to do and how he can manipulate it and control it and work it. If he's just sitting around tailoring, that's going to be boring for him. You know, it's all this game that he is playing. And he even like puts it in terms of scoring points and that yes. kind of thing. Like he says like, Ooh, that was definitely my point. I got that one. Ooh, I'm not sure who scored that. That might've been him. I'm not sure that, you know, like yeah. he just definitely keeps this tally, which is really interesting. Um, so speaking of Tomas Roeder, let's talk about this guy because he was really interesting. He's someone that, you know, you really don't know what's up with him until, the very, very end of the novel and everything kind of falls into place. Uh, he's a peace activist. He's head of like this uh, anti-war organization and, and gives speeches and stuff. But he's a former Starfleet officer who served with Cisco on the Starship Livingston. Um, and all through the novel, I'm questioning and, and the people around him are questioning too. Is he a true believer in the cause of peace? Uh, is there something else there beneath the surface? At one point, we learned that he was a Starfleet intelligence operative that was put into the the peace group. But now Garrick, when he hears him talk, he's like, no, no, this guy really believes what he's saying. He's not a deep undercover guy. 
what did you make of this guy? And and we'll get to kind of the revelations at the end of the novel, but throughout the novel, what were you kind of thinking of this rotor guy? I think what I was thinking about him was just that he, I was just taking it surface value of what they were saying that, Oh, he was a part of Starfleet intelligence. He was undercover in this peace organization, but now uh, we're not so sure, you know, because even Garrick says, so what's your problem? We, then they said, well, we said he was working for us undercover. We're not so sure now. And I thought, okay, so this is a guy that is now against the war. He's out there making speeches about peace and everything and having, you know, this peace group with him, this peace movement. And, but as it went on and we see the interaction with him and Garrick, I was a little confused I wasn't sure exactly what the deal with this character was. Is he broken? Is he mentally deranged? Is he, did he kind of lose it? And there's still a lot of questions about that. And I, this is going to come up probably several times for me in this conversation, but that's where the novel starts to lose me a little is I don't really feel like we get solid answers to things, but that's where I'm conflicted because I'm like, well, that's, probably kind of a good thing, but I also don't like it, you know? So I'm not really sure what the total answer is on this guy. I do. I, I, there's a part of me that strongly believes that I think he was linked to section 31, that he was maybe a section 31 agent, possibly. He was definitely part of Starfleet intelligence, but I'm, I'm, there's a part of me that wonders if he was in section 31 and he got in over his head. Hmm. Okay. All right. That's, that's interesting. Cause we're going to, we're going to stick a little pin in Thomas Roeder and we're going to come back to him uh, as we kind of wrap up exactly what happens at the end of this. But uh, for now, let's pop back to deep space nine and uh, the crew of the Ariadne, uh, which is this transport ship that's carrying a load of liquid latinum. And of course, as you know, latinum is, a hugely valued commodity. It's the main thing inside gold pressed latinum. It's worth, you know, tons of money. And Odo is afraid that while this freighter puts in for repairs at deep space nine, someone's going to try and steal the latinum. Now the client who's transporting the the latinum, this guy named Mector um, is kind of the businessman in charge of the latinum. And we've got captain Stein as the captain of the Ariadne and she has a crewman OJ, uh, playing Dabo at quarks. And while this is all going on and of course, uh, Odo's, um, fears come to pass. There's going to be an attempted theft of this latinum. We know it's going to happen because they keep (laughs) worrying about it and preparing for that, for that. Um, I see you've got something in here in the notes wondering about the point of this storyline and the character of OJ, because I kind of wondered the same thing. Like, is this just a red herring to kind of throw us off? Because this OJ guy is, is kind of interesting. Okay. Yeah. So again, this is what I was talking about earlier. I'm there's some things that aren't really answered. So I'm a little confused about things. So OJ has, he kind of reminds me of Barkley because they say, you know, he stumbles and he drops things and he's kind of, you know, uh, careless and whatever, but that he's brilliant at games and he's always winning games. 
And so Captain Stein brings him on into Quark's to play Dabo, but then Mector's there that she once taken away for Quark to distract him or do something because he's affecting Ozier's game because he makes him nervous and Ozier's going to win all this money. And so she tries to do a deal with Quark saying, look, if we can get Mector out of the way, then he'll win more money. And, and Quark's like, why would I want him to win more money? And she's like, because I want him to make all this money, but you will be out of money or you can go into this if he makes more money and you get a piece of the money if you get Mector out of the way. And I was like, okay, what does this have to do with the whole story? Like, what is the deal with this character? And I kept thinking, is he genetically enhanced? If he's one of those people that Bashir member took under his wing, was helping them right. out because socially they were, you know, they didn't fit in socially, but they were very intelligent. I the jackpack. Yeah. The jackpack. Yeah. Is he like something like that? And then it's like, but it doesn't really play out. But then I wondered, because at the end of all this, Mector is out of money because the Latinum does get stolen. So Stein is now able to take them winning. She didn't give it to Mector and make him whole, which made me wonder, are Stein and Auger part of section 31? Were they part of this hmm. plot? And that's why he was brought in so he can give the money to Mector and make him whole. That's an interesting thought. And and one that I hadn't thought of because I, I freely admit I was just kind of at a loss for all of this. Like for this part, it was interesting, like, but yeah, I wasn't sure what the connection was or what exactly happened there kind of thing. Well, because their, their, their ship was sabotaged. That was confirmed when O'Brien went on board. He said something happened. They were sabotaged you know, to make the engines fail. So it makes me wonder if the captain caused that to happen so they can go to Deep Space Nine to drop off the latinum so it can get stolen, but she has to take care of her client so Section 31 brought in this guy, Auger, and maybe he's just playing a character so he can win enough money at Dabo so they can give the money to the client and make him whole. See, I, that makes the most sense of anything I, I've I heard. I my brains on, brain on this one. So. That's amazing uh, because, yeah, um, I'm, I'm kind of like I'm equal parts happy that I think I figured out Tomas Roeder and his whole thing and frustrated that I couldn't figure out the whole Mector, uh, Stein, OJ thing, because that's awesome. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that's better than yeah. I did. That that's what I came up with. So, because that's what I'm saying. This whole novel is like that for me. It's like this. We're not really getting straight answers on everything. So I don't know for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Well, like we said, of course, uh, this latinum does get stolen and we have a Hemexi aboard, which is an alien race that uh, they're kind of not really humanoid. They're kind of, I don't know, I can't really describe them. They're kind of these strange aliens, but there's this ex-con Hemexi aboard named Brixta. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. That was just kind of my best guess. Um, and Odo is convinced that this guy is going to try and steal the Latinum. So uh, there's this whole thing with, you know, Bashir's feeling down and we know it's because of the Section 31 thing. But Dax is 
kind of trying to push Odo to involve Bashir in the investigation. Um, and of course, Odo gets this directive from Starfleet, increased security measures because of the war, and he is allowed to neutralize security threats to the station for the duration of, you know, some undefined emergency. So Odo takes this to say, well, an undefined emergency, we've got this latinum that I think might be stolen. We've got this guy I think is probably going to try and steal it. So I'm going to lock him up <laughs> for the period of time that the latinum is here. Odo interprets this new directive in this way, which, you know, I think Bashir at one point says that kind of sounds a lot like Cardassian justice, Odo. And Odo is very displeased with that characterization. But Yes, I think but there's he's a lot got to a point. be said about that. Yes, because that's another theme about this is we tend to do things in these different organizations that others would do also. You know, we think, oh, Starfleet's so pure and clean and righteous and does everything perfect and whatever. And then, you know, you're, we're saying, oh, that, that sounds like a rule a Cardassian would come up with. And that's the whole point. I mean, we even had a character from Romulus say, you know, that we're all kind of alike, that we actually respect one another when we do these underhanded things to win. And this message, obviously, to me, was placed by Section 31 to give Odo that opportunity to lock up this guy. Because what? It just, all of a sudden, this new rule just happens to show up right when this is going on so that Odo can do this. And Cork even places the ID in his head before this new order comes in, which makes me wonder if somebody was playing Cork at some point or Cork's in on some of this, where this Hemexi guy said something to Cork, like you should just tell Odo to lock me up. It's very Odo, possible. Yeah. And then Cork says, yeah, you know, you should just lock him up because he's thinking that's what he told me to say anyway. And then this Starfleet, rule comes in saying as long as you're suspicious of something you can lock them up and i was like hmm now it's time i can do this hey psh, throw them in it's like it's all like planned out like there's all these people behind the scenes doing stuff that are pulling the strings so yeah this guy is locked up odo locks him up but while he's locked up these people keep seeing an amexi roaming the station and, you know, they scan for Hemexi biosigns and there's only one. He's in the security office and there couldn't possibly be another one on board. That's really strange. Um, and then, of course, at a critical moment, the entire station's technical operations shut down and we see this Hemexi on the security monitors, just kind of casually making his way over to where this latinum's being locked up and the force fields are opening for him. And Odo and Bashir are locked in the security office. And there's even a device turned on that we remember from uh, deep space nine season three that prevents Odo from shape shifting now. Okay. Quick little aside here. That device was hidden inside those Bajoran dolls, right? Like they kept, Every time they mention it, they would like mention the Bajoran dolls sitting on Odo's desk or something like that. Well, I didn't think about that, but the device would be too big for those dolls. That's what I thought too, but it was just like, it was like three or four times they're like, Bashir looked over at the dolls on the desk, blah, blah, blah. Just after they'd mentioned like the device or something, I'm like, 
I, I don't know if it actually was, but it was like they were trying to make you suspect it was or something like that. But then again, nothing ever came out of that. We never learned about that or not. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't make the connection with the dolls. I just felt the dolls were symbolic that uh, if you break us apart, there's always some somebody different inside of us. Oh. Like there's different layers. Different layers to all the characters. That could you know? be. That could be. <laughs> Ogres are like onions. <laughs> Sorry. Again, that was telling because there's later a conversation where Odo is talking to Garrick and saying, you know, from the episode, uh, the die is cast. Mm. He says, you know, there was that time where that device was used on me where I couldn't, I stayed solid. I couldn't go back to being a liquid form. And did you tell anybody about the device, Garrick? And he's like, and I think he said something about, well, I didn't tell anybody in the Obsidian Order. I wouldn't tell anybody that, but maybe, you know, Starfleet, maybe something was mentioned to Starfleet about, which led me to believe that, okay, well, even let Odo believe, is Starfleet or somebody in Starfleet aware of this? Would they build this same device? Would they have enough knowledge to start looking to how to build a device like this? Which we find out kind of later they kind of do whatever but anyway the point is that again that was a section 31 that was the indication to me that starfleet slash section 31 was behind shutting down the station and preventing odo from going to liquid form so that was another big hint on who Mm -hmm. was behind all that yeah i definitely think that as well for sure so we do find out that this Hamexi who's walking around, this fake Brixta, is actually an android, and Bashir kind of pieces that together. Which uh, I don't because... understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know how Bashir pieced it together exactly. Like he well, kind of I explains kind of figure, it a little bit. I kind of figure how he pieced it together. It was just I don't really understand why they made a Hamexi android. I mean, Bashir put, pieced it together because he's like, well, there's no other Hamexi on the station. So he's ruling out all possibilities. And Oda was able to shoot down, well, it can't be a changeling. And so it's like, well, then what is this if the Hamexi we do know is here is locked up and we, we verified that? Who, what could this other be? And we're not picking up any life signs. Maybe it's an android. So I kind of get how he would get to that, even though Oda mm. was like, I don't know if I believe that, you know, whatever. Even Worf's like, oh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but then... Whoever's behind all this, why make a Hamexi android anyway? Like, why does it even have to be an android? Like, like, like I don't really understand. Well, I, I think to me, it's like, okay, so we've got the obvious guy who's probably going to try and steal. So Odo's like, okay, well, we'll lock him up and we know he's locked up. And then... So the the only way that he could be found innocent would be to plead that, like, well, somebody's obviously trying to set me up. So they have this android that looks exactly like him. They're trying to pin it on me, but I was locked up this whole time, so I couldn't do it. I think that's kind of what the end game there was, because Odo has to admit that that's a possibility, even though he doesn't believe it. He's like, somehow he got away with this, but... The, there's no evidence, right? I can't hold him. There's just this android that looks like him, but we know he was in the holding cell. But see, that doesn't really work for me because they said these Hemexes are kind of unusual to see. You don't see them very often. They're from some remote section of the quadrant, I think Dax says or whatever. So, I mean, to me, it would make sense just to have, 
If you're going to use an Android, maybe it's just an Android that looks like something else or whatever. But to have it look like a Hemexi, just like I don't understand the the point of that. If if the goal is to have your Hemexi in prison, <laughs> but then have a robot Hemexi, like why does it have to be a Hemexi? Like, well, I think, to, like I said, it's kind of, it, it's, it's thin, but it's like, then he can say, well, they're obviously trying to frame me. Whereas, it, you know, okay, if it was yeah. an Android that looked different, they could say, well, it's obviously your Android. That's true. But they couldn't really say that to him this way because, well, why would I make it look like me then if I didn't want you to think it was my Android? Blah, blah. So okay, it's, I'll buy that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of weak, but I'm like, okay, I think that's kind of why. Yeah, because but. if it was him behind it, why would he make it look like him? Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly, which would be his defense, right? Right. So Okay. I'll go with that. Yeah. But the fact that he's an antiques dealer and has a whole bunch of little machines and stuff kind of does point at him. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But like I said, lots of questions. <laughs> Definitely lots of questions. So, okay, we do get a few answers to some of those questions at the end. And bear with me, like it takes a little bit to kind of piece this together. But uh, we get, you know, the the Hamexi android, um, you know, goes and steals the latinum, takes it to this planetoid. And the real Hamexi is released a little while later, and he eventually goes there too. And um, he's going to deliver this liquid latinum to... Uh, Tomas Roeder, we find out he was supposed to, but of course, back on earth, there was this standoff between him and Garrick and Cisco and Tomas ended up dying there. So he's not there to pick up the Latinum, but who is there to pick up the Latinum? It's, uh, Sloan and his section 31 pal Enderby. And, uh, they intercept the Latinum and there's a very brief scene where, Sloan picks up the vials of latinum and, you know, is typing all these numbers that are being read off of them. And as he's doing that, he's pouring the latinum out because Starfleet's a moneyless society or the Federation's a moneyless society. What do we need money for? And this guy's like, oh my God, you're pouring out all the latinum. But the real information there, if you look at what he's saying is um, morphogenic somethings, blah, blah, blah. Basically the, the encoded information in the latinum was the fact that Section 31 had genetically engineered a virus to infect the shapeshifters that was going to commit genocide on the shapeshifters. And what happened, you, you kind of piece it all together. What happened was, I think, Tomas Roeder was undercover with the peace movement, but at some point he uncovered evidence of what Section 31 was doing to the go, going to do to the changelings to infect them with this virus. And he was going to transmit that information to the dominion. So he was kind of in league with the, or like he was so outraged by what section 31 was doing. He was sending that information to the dominion. And all of this was kind of a section 31 operation to get their hands on that evidence and dispose of it. Yes. <laughs> however i do have questions so okay this leads to where i thought maybe rotor could be part of section 31 because you said somehow he figured out section 31's plan mm -hmm. that's what made me wonder he could have been part of section 31 the mission's still the same 
to be, you know, joining this peace movement undercover, but undercover is Section 31. And because he's Section 31, he's aware of what their plan is. And then he goes rogue against Section mm-hmm. 31. So that's that where I could I'm, very well be. Yeah. It could be and it could not be. But that's where I was going through. I think he might be Section 31 because of that. Because how else would he know what Section 31 is doing? Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty smart, you know? That's true, too. Yeah. But what I don't understand now, and help me figure this out, because like I said, I have questions. <laughs> so these codes, I totally get what that does and it exposes what the plan is. But where are those codes from and co- coming from? Because they can't be from Rotor, because Rotor was there to intercept the codes, but he didn't show up because he'd been killed. Mm-hmm. So where were the codes? Because co- the codes were coming to... Were, were being brought to him. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can think of is early in the in the novel, and I wanted to go back and reread this, but I, I didn't have time to kind of. He's transmitting something. Um, remember, there's that scene where he's like, "I want nobody. I, I'm going to answer the calm myself. I want nobody else to answer." And you know, he ta- yes. does this communication and he only writes he doesn't use it does electronic communication he only writes right so yeah except this is the exception to that Mm -hmm. which was i think he was setting up this whole thing and because he you know usually doesn't use communication digitally he only has you know physical communication i think that's what he was trying to do was physically um get this information to the dominion somehow in this, in these vials. I'm not a hundred percent clear on that, but yeah, I'm not, not a hundred percent, but yeah. So maybe he produced the vials and gave them to, to someone Mector, or I don't know who somehow whatever, because he knows that he couldn't get it very far. He couldn't get them off planet himself to deliver it. So he needed somebody else to get hold of those codes or put those codes on these vials so that he can intercept the codes somewhere else further away. Yeah. And then deliver them to the Dominion or something. Yeah. I don't know. That's where I'm a little (laughs) confused of how, why he would have been the one as planned to intercept the codes if the codes were coming from him. Yeah. You know? It's it's a good point, and I don't know. <laughs> Unless but. he was communicating with someone else that has the codes, but he doesn't. He himself doesn't have the codes, and they were trying to get the codes to him. That could be as well. Maybe he knew who had the evidence, and he had a compatriot that he was working with or something like that. Or maybe Section 31 was using those codes and they themselves put them on the vials because they were going to use it themselves for something else. And he knew about it. So he had the ship rerouted to Deep Space Nine to get hold of the codes through his plan. And they intercepted him and got the vials back themselves. That actually makes the most sense to me now because... um because of the way that Sloan records all of that information before disposing of it, you know, he wasn't, now that I think about it, he wasn't just confirming what that information was. He was copying it for himself. So the, the latinum was bound for section 31, I think. And then 
Tomas was intercepting it and going to reroute it to the Dominion. Yes. That's, that's what, what I'm thinking. That yeah. makes the most sense. Okay. See? The last little Lego brick slides into place. See, we have to talk through this. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I get mixed feelings about this book, because it's not just, you know, flat out, there's all the answers, which is kind of cool, but at the same time, frustrating. I'm glad, you know, because the first time I read this book was years ago. I don't remember when it was, but a long time ago. You know, I didn't discuss it with anybody. Now I have you to discuss it. I have everybody listening who can contribute to the Babel Conference. They could have further insight for us that we're not even coming up with. Because I still yeah. have so many questions. Like, okay, okay, uh, gosh, like, I don't even, I don't know. Do you have more to say on that? Because I, I've got some things that came up in this book that I'm feeling like are clues to something, but I haven't figured out what they're for. Okay. I think I'm good on this. I think actually that's the most satisfied I've felt about this whole part of the book now. Um, I was just happy that I figured out the rotor was outraged at the changeling virus thing. But okay. What do you got? Well, there was a conversation about, um, well, okay, no, wait, let me back up. Cause you just mentioned about rotor. Rotor was killed by Garrick. We kind of glossed over that. Yeah. At that moment, uh, Cisco comes in because Garrick has been captured by Rotor, and Rotor's threatening to kill Garrick. But Rotor is very nervous, and that's where we start to find out that you know his he's really nervous because he thinks he's getting caught, and Garrick mm-hmm. knows or something. And Cisco shows up, and we come to find out that he's less nervous about Garrick; he's more nervous about Cisco, and he's wondering why Cisco is there. Why are you here? You're here to get me. You're here to kill me. And Cisco's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, no, that's, I'm not here to kill you. I'm not, you know. And Rotor's convinced and is nervous around Cisco, I think because Rotor's mission was to divert those vials to Deep Space Nine and thinks, oh my gosh, I got caught because the Deep Space Nine commander is now here. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's like, that's why he was so nervous about Cisco being there is because he's like, oh my gosh, I've been caught because my plan that's happening DS9 has the DS9 commander here with a Cardassian to confront mm-hmm. me. And that was really telling to me because it was like that, that just showed why he was so nervous. Not just that he was getting caught, but well, it was about him getting caught, but he knew he was in deep, but Cisco was that spark that made him panic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I mean, this might be reading way too much into things, but depending on how recently he's been getting intelligence from Section 31 or Starfleet intelligence or whatever, he might know what Cisco and Garrick did with Vrenak. Like there might be, you know, so he might think like, oh, Cisco's in deep with section 31. Obviously they're the only ones that would do something like that. So maybe he thinks Cisco is like, you know, in it up to his elbows with section 31 as well. And he's like, oh, he knows all about this. Oh my God. He's going to kill me. That's true too. Yeah. Uh, See, I'm, I'm kicking myself that we didn't ask Una to join us for this conversation now. Me too. And I'm like, okay, we're, we've got two new, Una McCormick books coming this year. We've got to like write down a few hollow men questions for her. Well, because she's coming on soon, more likely she's coming on soon with her new Picard novel. And I was like, well, I don't think she's going to come on like now. And then again, like that quick. I don't know. Cause she's too busy with Picard right now. But, mm-hmm. um, 
but I hope she listens to this episode. I'm going to ask her to, because I'd love to hear what she's, she's probably laughing at us right now. if She's listening. <laughs> Not that we're wrong or anything, but there might be things we're wrong on, but just listen to us figuring this stuff out. So here's one of the questions I have. And if she's listening, she can help me figure this out too, or tell us what she was thinking. But Dan, you can help me figure this out. So there was a point on earth where they mentioned uh, the security officer looking for Garrick when Tomas has Garrick. And they said that they found the signature of a Cardassian in London, that would be Garrick, and the ones that are at Starfleet or Federation headquarters, whatever they were, the ones that are the government exile. But then there was another one they found. Where was that? Japan or something like that? It was somewhere yeah, in Asia. Or, or Beijing, maybe? It was, yeah, in Beijing. You're right. It was yeah. Beijing. And then they said later that they found out, well, it's a Cardassian that has been altered into, I think it was a human, mm-hmm. and doesn't even know that she's a Cardassian, that she's just a human. But, you know, oh, yeah, there's been things like this in other societies, you know, where they take someone and they regenerate them into another being and then they put them in the society and they don't know and then you know whatever what does that have to do with the story is there someone in here (laughs) that has been changed that we didn't know about okay i don't think it has anything to do with the rest of this novel i think if you look at when this novel was published it was like during the whole um deep space nine relaunch novels with Ileana Gamor, who is, I think, the Bajoran slash Cardassian they're talking about when Cisco says, like, th- in fact, on Bajor right now, there's there's a there's a Bajoran living who's actually a Cardassian. We've not found right. her and blah, blah, blah. So I think it's just like a little bit of like tying to that story uh, to kind of just I think that's my best that guess. Might be. Yeah. Yeah. Because I immediately was like, oh, it's Ileana Gamore. Oh, yeah, all those books, like um, the, uh, oh, I can't remember the titles right now, but the one with the hand with the orb fragment in front of the wormhole. Hand, no, uh, something I, or, oh, what was that? Uh, I know what you're talking about. The Soul Key. The episode. Yes, Soul (laughs) Key. Yes. I have that one. I haven't read it, though. I do Mm -hmm. have it, but I've never read that one. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was the whole Ileana Gamora thing. So I think I was just kind of trying to tie to that. I could be wrong, but... Okay, because you know where I'm going, and I know this isn't right, because it was confirmed that the uh, Hemexi was an android. But mm-hmm. my thought was at the time, and maybe this was to try to throw people off like me, I thought, well, if the Hemexi that is going through the station, stealing the Latin, isn't registering as Hemexi, then it's another being that has been converted into a Hemexi. And that's why hmm. the life signs are not showing up as Mexi, similar to the Cardassian on earth. That's not a Cardassian, but a human, but you know what I'm saying? Like I was like, Oh, that's what it, it's not an Android, but then it was confirmed. It was an Android. So. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's where I thought that was going to go. Okay. That's an interesting thought too. Like I, I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do wonder if there's some sort of deeper connection that, Maybe neither of us is just thinking of, but yeah, I'm not sure. And then the musician, the Cardassian musician, what was that about? There was, um, Tomas Roder saw this 
musician from Cardassia that came to earth to perform once and she's famous and, Oh, she just got her credentials or whatever her license from Cardassia. Cause she's outspoken. That's why it took her so long. Cause she likes alien, other alien music. And then when Cisco goes to his father's restaurant, Cisco's sister starts talking about, Oh yes, I've saw her perform too. And he's, then she figures out she was at the same concert that Tomas was at and wish she would have known that he was there so she could say hi to him. I thought, why do we keep bringing up this musician? Like, I wasn't understanding the connection with that. So two things, my two theories there. Uh, the first one is I think she kind of highlights the difference between uh, Federation culture and Cardassian culture which, yes. when we're first talking about her because we're seeing Earth through Garrick's eyes and Garrick's talking about like, oh, yeah, she – you know, like it's a completely normal thing that yeah. like, oh no, she just now got permission, blah, blah, blah. There's so I many think, things like that, that comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, and I could be wrong. I think she might've been Tomas's initial contact with the Cardassians and the Dominion and that sort of thing, because they do make a point about him having been at that same concert and, uh, talking with her and stuff. So I think not confirmed, but I think they're that they're like saying like, here's a connection. Maybe that's how he made contact with, he's like, I have information for your government. You know, we need to make this contact kind of thing. That would make sense that. Okay. I buy that, that, that works. Yes. That, that totally makes sense that that was some kind of, cause I kept thinking like, why, and the fact that she's outspoken and she doesn't really conform to Cardassia as much as others, that, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. But now, going back to the end of the novel, I don't know if those codes were supposed to go to the Founders or the Dominion. Weren't they supposed to go to Cardassia? Yeah, which, you know, like at this time is kind of the seat of Dominion power in the Alpha Quadrant. So Yeah, because it says, know. I just found a page on 340. Uh, while the Hemexi examined the files, Sloane stared up at the fabulous sky. I suppose Thomas intended to cross the border here, he said, looking at Cardassian space. So yeah, mm -hmm. he was going to take it to Cardassian space. So maybe there was a connect. Yeah, he had a connection with this musician who was Cardassian, and she he's working somehow with the Cardassians. Yeah, that's that's my best guess. And yeah. that's kind of just in retrospect now that you bring it up. I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I bet, you know, I bet you that was his connection there. But yeah, see or all these a possible connection <laughs> without true answers. Una, what are you doing to me? <laughs> I would love to talk to her about this book for sure. Yes, <laughs> but that would not be just a quick conversation. <laughs> no, definitely. <laughs> Well, I guess all that's left is to ask, uh, is there any final thoughts that you have on this novel and maybe a uh, rating? Okay. So this is, I definitely like this novel. Like I said, I read it years ago. I don't know if I read it as soon as it came out, but probably sometime shortly after that. And now this I'm reading a second time and I had to kind of go back and read, reread some sections again, when there's all these questions, I'm starting to wonder, am I not understanding this? Am I reading this wrong? Do, you know, I, I'm questioning myself, if anything. And then I, the more I start going back and rereading things, I'm like, no, I really 
no, that doesn't really add up. Or now maybe this makes a little more sense or whatever. So it was a little bit confusing. But at the same time, this conversation is something I was really looking forward to because I had so many questions and so many thoughts that I wanted to share them with you. And this novel only works for me if I had that opportunity with someone. Hmm. If I just read this novel and that was it and I'm not in any, you know, Trek BBS conversation or Facebook conversation or talking to you or whatever, it would just kind of be like, well, that was interesting. And I would say that, you know, it was an average book, but it feels so above average to the point that I want to say, I love it, but I can't because it's just like, there's just things that I'm still questioning and not really sure about and I really understanding it. So I have to, I don't want to say I'm docking it. It's just more of this, like, I, I, I feel like I want to love it, but it's like, you know what? It's like when you meet someone and you're falling in love, but you still have a few questions before you can pop the question. That's where I am. I can't pop the question right now. I've still got too many questions, but I'm still in love. So I'm going to give this eight and a half out of 10 vials of liquid latinum. Oh, wow. All right. Still a really good rating for sure. Um, Yeah. I, like you, love this novel. There's, I mean, this one just hits so many buttons for me. And yeah, I have a few questions but that doesn't bother me too much. Like there's some things that I'm like, okay, if I feel like if I read this two or three more times, I'd make even more connections and, and really kind of nail this down and, you know, have the big wall with the pins and the string going from different, you know, and just total conspiracy theory. Oh my God, this connection here, all this stuff. But the fact that I don't have strings to all of those pins yet I'm okay with that because I love Garrick. I I think he's one of my absolute favorite characters and Una McCormick just nails his voice here and just I oh man, he he she is second only to Andrew Robinson, a master of telling Garrick's story. And then add to that that uh, in the pale moonlight is such a favorite episode of mine to the point that I'd be trepidatious of something following it up, except this one does it so perfectly. And like we said earlier, slots so perfectly into that part of season six of deep space nine, that uh, even though I absolutely hate this phrase, this term, it's I, I can put it in my head canon for season six of Deep Space Nine. I absolutely believe that after in the pale moonlight, you know, Cisco and Garrick took a runabout to Earth and the Ariadne came to Deep Space Nine and the Latinum got stolen and all of this happened. Like it just it fits there so perfectly that I can't give this less than five out of five disgruntled Lysepian businessmen who are ticked off about their Latinum getting stolen. <laughs> it's, it's so good. I, I love this novel. It is really good. I think it's worth a second read uh, mm-hmm. for the reasons you're saying, because I forgot one of the reasons that I didn't rate it as high as you. And that's because the first time you read it, there's these two storylines and the storyline on the station feels so separate from what's Mm -hmm. going on on earth. Like you just feel like you're reading two different novels going back and forth, back and forth. And you're like, these stories aren't related to each other at all. It's not until you really start to get towards the end that you start to think, well, maybe there's a relationship between them. 
And then you get to the end, you realize there is one. And I think then knowing that, if you go back and reread it, now you know that the two stories are intertwined with each other. Where at Mm -hmm. first read, you're just going like, okay, why not just write one story? Why these two completely stories that are unrelated? That's how it feels at first, you know? Yeah, and that's definitely true. And this even this second time around reading it, I kind of forgot until halfway through. I was like, oh, wait, these do connect up again, don't they? Like I had forgotten about that, so... Yeah. And uh, I think you're hoping that you'll find that out, but it doesn't feel like there's any relation between them for a long yeah, time. Yeah. They do feel definitely disjointed for sure. But you're but, right uh, about the character Garrick and Una does such a great job with him that she makes me nervous. We have an earthbound Garrick <laughs> in Una, you know, she could be deceiving us right now. Oh my goodness. Well, so far... Anyway, it seems that she's only used her powers for good. I really hope that (laughs) continues. (laughs) That's right. Okay, this novel was really good. And again, it's like, I want to give it a better rating. I really do. But I'm not feeling it yet to say like a five out of five or something like that. Just because Mm -hmm. there's just so many questions that I have. But... I will say, based on what you originally asked at the beginning of this episode, is how does it feel to read a Deep Space Nine novel that takes place during the sixth season? It makes me want to go and binge watch Deep Space Nine, at least that yep. season. or so, Doesn't it? I mean, I just <laughs> like, I'm just dying to watch some Deep Space Nine right now. Oh, I know. Me too. The whole time I was reading this, the whole time, I was like, okay, well, I really want to watch In the Pale Moonlight. Now I really want to watch uh, in Inquisition. Now I really want to watch his way. Like, you know, and then it just spreads from there. Right. I did watch Inquisition before we started recording. Oh, nice. <laughs> Cause I awesome. was like that too. I was like, I want to go back and watch. And I hadn't watched that one in a while. I watched in the pale moonlight, not that long ago. So I didn't watch it again, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's go binge watch deep space nine right now. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it's been fun talking about lapsing back into uh, being addicted to Deep Space Nine rewatches today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. Did I ever tell you the story about how Channel Channel 4 in Oklahoma City played Next Generation at 10.30 because that's when they had played yeah. the original series reruns the last time they had a shot at it. Yeah. And you think that's insane, but their thinking was, are you kidding? Do you know what kind of ratings we get with Star Trek at 10.30 on Sunday night after the local news? We'd never get those kind of ratings with anything else. And I'm like, but you would get even bigger ratings if you put it at a normal time. <laughs> and so they finally, going into fourth season... They had a big clinic. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But best of both worlds, part two of all (laughs) the times to change the airtime and then not tell. They didn't promote it. To the journey. Another interesting statistic on this while we're talking about it is that past a certain point in human history, I forget the exact number, but I, I read an article on it, but past a certain point, Anyone who is alive at that point is statistically likely to be an ancestor of everyone alive today. Well, that just sort of broke my brain. Can you? <laughs> I know. It's weird to think about that. <laughs> if you go far back in time enough in human history, at a certain, it's like a 
crossover point yeah, almost where yeah. anyone alive at that point and prior to that point is likely to be an ancestor of every living human today gosh that's an amazing stat statistically yeah that's yeah. an amazing stat the edge a star trek discovery podcast you're not going to get in discovery or at least i hope they don't things like references to grand magus ron that that's nothing in comparison do you know like oh I, I can do you one better. Grand Nagus Brunt. Ugh. Brunt. C-A. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Combs, I love uh, you. <laughs> can we please have Jeffrey Combs in Discovery? Earl Grey. How are we bettering ourselves? And the way that it seems to be is through high culture. Well, I think it also ties into this kind of utopianism of Next Gen. I mean, Next Gen is the most, I mean, people say Star Trek is utopian, and I would broadly agree with that. But Next Gen is absolutely the most utopian. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published, and please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, Spotify, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, trips to Earth with Garrick, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. Warning, we will not insure you against accidental death or dis- dismemberment at the hands of Garrick. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and it will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can also find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are always great conversations happening about the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just go to goodreads.com, search for Literary Treks, and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Che Mutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not locked in the security office watching an android Hamexi steal a bunch of latinum, where can we find you? Well, you can find me with Bashir freaking out about that, and you can find me on Facebook uh yeah, I'm out there on Facebook. So you can find me in the Babel Conference if you want to find me on Facebook. And I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me on the Star Wars Report. 
which is, of course, a podcast about Star Wars. And, of course, I do Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala about Discovery when a new episode of Discovery comes out. The next night, we're live on YouTube, and it's released as a podcast. So, Dan, when you're not on Earth throwing little pieces of bread out to the swans and wondering why you're doing this, is it because they're starving to death? Where can people (laughs) find you? Well, you can find me uh, worrying about the uh, the swans and all of that stuff on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, uh, where I make videos about Star Trek and sometimes Star Wars and sometimes some other stuff. And occasionally, Bruce Gibson, Brandy Jacklin, and I will be doing live shows, uh, hopefully for Star Trek Picard as well, which uh, it occurs to me now, this episode will be out after Star Trek Picard premieres. Oh my gosh, new Star Trek. Ah! Um, So I'll probably be talking about that on my YouTube channel as well and on Twitter and on Facebook.com slash Kurtratz Productions as well. Probably be talking about Star Trek Picard. You probably will. I might mention a few things here or there from time to time. I do, to answer you and Brandy, I do still want to keep doing those uh, live shows on the channel as well. So We'll do some live shows. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening. And until next time. Live long. And read on and watch out for Cardassian assassins. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.